Abolition. Abolition. Right now, in the shadows of Wall Street, in the shadows of the Statue of Liberty, in the shadows of the skyscrapers that run the world media, is an island. There's no distinction between minors and adults. There's no protection against assault with teenagers are being treated like they were in slavery right now. You want to start talking about structural racism? That is a culture, and we've been doing it for years. Rikers Island is named after Richard Riker. Richard Riker was the chief magistrate in charge of the court system of New York City. The spider at the center of a web of bounty hunting rings kidnapping escaped slaves. Even children kidnapped and sold into slavery. A few years later, and it still happened. I was having a conversation with one inmate, and he asked me, he said, where are all the white inmates? Very seldom did I see a white inmate come through Rikers Island. And if they did, they didn't stay long. Khalif was legally innocent, but unable to walk out that door. We should be torturing people before they're even tried? What country is that? Holding anybody for two years in solitary on a pretrial basis is inconsistent with who we say we are as a nation. Every time with the court, I was expecting to have my day at trial, and it just... It was never granted to me. You have a right to a speedy trial, and speedy trial is six months. How on earth was Khalif Browder in jail for three years? In May of 2010, 16-year-old Khalif Browder was walking home from a party with a friend when he was stopped by police. An officer said a man had accused them of stealing his backpack. All my people been hurting, growing up lost, we been broken. I just want to let the world know, worth the Khalif, gotta let the pain show. Every day they judge me by my skin color, modern day slavery, I'm a protester. Climbing up a broken ladder, all of my peers living life like it don't matter. Trapped in the system, can't escape prison, even when you innocent, they don't listen. Stand up for your rights, they shooting when we fight, taking away life, bringing darkness to your life. Political this, political that. They just mad at the fact, they just hate that we black This ain't the plantation, no, you ain't taking us back Malcolm X with the strap, they ain't cutting no slack Instead of giving hope to fulfill a dream They'd rather give us pills for the self-esteem They used to hang us from a tree Now we in the box, pissing in the pot You know it's crazy with Donald Trump calling shots Genocide, homicide, propaganda, justified Khalif Browder, suicide May you rest in peace, Proud of my
pussy gone, get neglected So we strap up and shoot just to feel respected Gang bang and life change to feel protected By the system, young black males are all affected We Instagram and Facebook to feel accepted I pray to God, I hope you can get the message The judge told me if I plead guilty I would release from jail that same day But I didn't do it You're not gonna, you're not gonna make me say I did something Just so I can go home If I gotta stay here five more months Just to prove that I'm innocent Then so be it It's just, it's just heartbreaking And it's like I felt like they were just playing with my life What's the solution? Less talking and more doing. A revolution. We the people, the constitution. No more losing. We see now, no more illusion. Who the union? Our school system need more approval. What's the guideline? Show me the design. They shutting down right before a dollar sign. For that real estate, yeah, we know how they debate. Rich getting richer, more food on their dinner plate. Uh, we should march on LaGuardia. Screaming out loud, we need more housing in the area. That we can't avoid, these type of issues can't ignore Instead of walking past, we should pick each other off the floor uh, We just product of environment Either in jail or die before retirement huh. That's the type of shit that they invent They try to set a superman when really he just Clark Kent I always believed in standing up for what I thought was right And if I would've just been placed guilty Then my story would've been never been heard Nobody would've took the time to listen to me I'd have been just another I've been hurt all my life Nights and mornings, morning and night Looking for a change, trying to make a change Yet everything stays everything You just heard the clip from the documentary Time, the Khalif Browder story, followed by Khalif Browder featuring Nadi Lee, Glory Lives. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, an online radio and syndicated weekly online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Yusuf. I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, doing the damn thing and looking forward to this conversation with the new breed, New York slavery abolitionists. That's right. New York, New York, big city of dreams. So last week we were joined by Pat Gailey, author of Fundamentals of Well-Being, Four Qualities You Can't Live Without. Pat is also the lead organizer for Abolish Slavery Kentucky and a member of the Quaker community. We discussed the physics of abolition, chaos, complexity theory, quantum theory, fractal geometry, wholeness and the implicate order, the butterfly effect, phase transitions, self-organizing systems, system thinking, emergence, initial conditions of chaos, and pattern recognition. 
We covered the science while breaking down the issues of legalized Damn, slavery in Pat's home state. Yeah. <laughs> in Pat's home state of Kentucky and nationally. It was a science class last week. And there was there was no math, though. So uh, make sure you check that out because even the bridge in the gap covered the science of abolition as it applied to the ancestors. So you definitely want to check that out in our archives, abolitiontoday.org. This week we are joined by members of 13th Forward to discuss the No Slavery in New York Act, that's Senate Bill 225 and House Bill 3412, the New York Anti-Slavery Bill. Our guest will be Jesse Copeless, Statewide Director for Ending Mass Incarceration at, New- at Citizen Action of New York, Wilfredo Laracuente, 13th Forward Campaign Leader, Educator, and Formerly Incarcerated Advocate. Of course, we'll have powerful, inspiring music, and as always, we'll bring the voices of the ancestors back to life for a new generation in our Bridging the Gap segment. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Max, how was your week, and uh, what you think of the opening track? Oh, man, you know, that track was, I think, perfect introduction to the discussion today and using Khalif Browder as the example of what he went through. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that really that really was a good introduction to this conversation that we're going to have. For sure. And For we've sure. had an exciting week. Um, you know, we formed a post-election committee led by Jamilia Land out of California, uh, which will focus on primarily setting precedents in states that have already abolished slavery. Because, you know, we're up to eight now that we have with no exceptions to slavery. And Alabama is really a prime subject for that, I think, uh, what they're going through there. So she'll be focusing a lot on Alabama. And I'm looking forward to seeing right. the results. I've already had some conversations with the attorneys that we're working with there, civil rights attorneys out of Montgomery, Alabama. And it looks very promising. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff won't stop till you hold people accountable. Um, right. Also, during our state operations meeting, we had the Associated Press join us. They're doing right. a, a pretty right. big story on it. And I know they were impressed because when they were there, we had 13 states represented. Uh, and uh, right. 12 of them have legislation uh, 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 in progress. Seven of them have legislation already submitted, and that's just for 23 and 24. Uh, this year, we've already got five states that have legislation for 23. The other two have it for 24. Um, and it looks very promising. Like, we might just do better this year than we've done any year previously, uh, which is wild considering it's an off year. Uh, and I also had a conversation with Brother Jaleel Montekin. Um, you know, he spent half a century behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. Now he's free. And he's also one of the organizers for 13th Forward. So he'll be our guest next week. Uh, this week we're talking – uh, with our two guests tonight, and then he'll come and join us next week, so he can tell us his story. Yeah, that's going to be really big. And then the other piece, Friday, you and I, along with other organizers, uh, with uh, no exceptions, North Carolina, we met with the representative, and he gave us a great update. So we're very close to introducing the bill in North Carolina. You know, so yeah, that's it was, awesome. it's a really big week for us. Really big week last week. And- and I got to make a clarification too, Yusuf. You know, we said mm-hmm. that March 15th we were going to start uh, Tales from the Plantation, but that date has yes. been moved to April 5th uh, while we work on some of the details. So April 5th will be Tales from the Plantation uh, featuring Brother Samuel Nathaniel Brown as the host. That's right. 
That's right. Can't wait for that. Can't wait. Amen, man. Well, so, speaking of can't wait, I can't wait to meet our uh, guest tonight. Uh, would you like to do the introductions, and I'll go ahead and open up their lines. Yeah, for sure. So we have Jesse Kokla, statewide organizer for ending mass incarceration for Citizen Action of New York. And we have Wilfredo Laracuente. He's an advocate, educator, and formerly incarcerated leader. He aims to provide a voice for incarcerated people by not only providing insight into the struggles that incarcerated people face daily, but actively working towards deconstructing the harmful and dehumanizing nature of prison. He currently serves as a workshop facilitator for FedCap Impact, Inc. Mr. Laracuente mentors young people and guides them through developing coping mechanisms associated with trauma and stress. stress. He's also, before coming home in July 2021, Wilfredo spent 20 years incarcerated in Sing Sing Prison and earned his bachelor's degree in behavioral science. So everyone, everywhere listening, please give a warm welcome for Jesse Koklas and Mr. Laracuente. I didn't forget his first name already. <laughs> Wilfredo <laughs> Laracuente. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Peace, Jesse. Uh, peace, Wilfredo. Welcome to Abolition Today. Uh, good evening. Thanks Hello. How are you doing? Awesome. Uh, I'm assuming that was Brother Wilfredo. And uh, is Jesse? Yes. Hi. Thanks for having yeah. us. It's our pleasure. Um, we are very happy to be in communication with you and also to be in solidarity with you. You know, uh, we've been working on this uh, for years now to try to get to where we're at and to see New York stepping up to the plate. Uh, is awesome. Uh, New York is one of the leaders of the country, and you guys are doing mm-hmm. uh, what I would like to call God's work. Uh, you know, uh, I'd like to start off by asking a couple questions. Uh, uh, Jesse, uh, can you tell us uh, how long you've been involved in, I guess, what you would call it is slavery abolition? Yes. Yeah. So um, this campaign has been around thirteen four. It's been around since about twenty eighteen. Um, but I would say, you know, we've been taking our time kind of building the movement, building the coalition. We have a really broad coalition of organizations from across New York State, of faith-based organizations, labor organizations, you know, reentry and other criminal justice advocacy organizations. Um, and uh, we've been putting together our materials and doing our research and things like that. You know, it takes, it takes a lot to, to build a coalition. Um, but th- I would say this year is the first year we really have like a real concrete organizing and legislative plan. And so this is the first year that a lot of legislators are hearing about our, um, about our two bills that we have, um, introduced in the, uh, New York state. Um, so we're, we're seeing a lot of progress this year, even though we've had, um, the bills have been introduced in previous sessions. Um, but I got, um, I've been involved in um, 13 Forward for about a year now. Um, Wilfredo has been here um, involved for, for longer than I have. Um, but I've been involved in this, in this type of organizing for years. Um, I, have, um, I have a bunch of, a, a few family members that have been in, in all different types of, incarcerated in different types of facilities, like um, drug treatment facilities, jails and prisons, and um, different states um, in the country. 
And so it's it's definitely a personal um, matter for me. And I want to, my goal, is the, you know, the thing that I dedicate my life to is um, trying to figure out how to, we can keep people out of prison and get people the resources and um, support they need to prevent them from going to prison. And then, you know, if, if, you know, and, and if we have, if, you know, in the current system, people still end up in prison, figuring out how to, once they're released, how to give them the support to um, make it so that they don't have to return to prison. Um, Cause we know that once people have contact with the criminal justice system, you know, they get, you know, it's often stuck in a cycle of um, incarceration. And so part of our movement is, you know, providing pathways to employment post-incarceration and giving people the training and resources they need when they're incarcerated um, to really be equipped to succeed upon release. Um, yeah, so that's, that's also one of the things that we're fighting for. And, and I know you had mentioned that we have, a, we have the constitutional um, bill uh, proposal to abolish slavery in our state constitution, but we also have another bill that's really like the heart of our campaign, I would say, um, that a lot of other states don't have yet, um, that actually would change the working conditions from these slave-like conditions inside, and we can talk about that more at some point. Absolutely. Um, Brother Wilfredo, uh, as someone who is a returning citizen, um, was this work that you were doing while in the inside? And also, you know, a lot of times uh, we talk about uh, people who have been convicted of crimes, but we know that there's also a large community that are wrongfully convicted, and there's no magic bullet to be able to stop them uh, from suffering what they're doing because wrong convictions are widespread, particularly in a place like New York where unconstitutional activities like stop and frisk go on, as well as the corruption within the police force. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your history prior to and after coming out to uh, join this movement? Sure, I can. And thank you for having me as well. Um, my name is Wilfredo Laraquente, and I've been a part of 13 Forward for maybe about since I was released on July 19, 2021, after doing 20 years from Sing Sing Correctional Facility. And I've been doing this work for a while. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you talked about earlier, um, tales from the plantation. Well, I work for Coalcraft uh, Industries, which is the plantation inside the Department of Corrections for about eight years. So oh, yeah. I definitely know what it sure, knows to sure. from the plantation. Um, and something where if you don't work, there are other deplorable conditions and other consequences that come with someone not being um, mindful of the system. And, you know, you alluded to something when you talk about corruption, but there are a lot of SUNY and CUNY schools that are currently um, complicit silently with slavery and condoning it by purchasing the items that are uh, are made available by coal craft industries. These are institutions of higher learning that claim to be uh, dealing with mass incarceration and wanted to educate um, people of color that are housed behind the Department of Corrections, but yet they're willing to go ahead and buy items that were made on the blood, sweat, and tears and the traumas of the black and brown communities that has been going on for a number of years. This is a business that has been allowed to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. They don't have to worry about price gouging. They don't hurry out labor because they control the market because they their labor is being charged while being accepted and used from anywhere from 15 cents to 45 cents an hour. So anything from pink soap to the license plates that goes on cars, 
to the signs that you see all over New York City, even to the desks that are used by the young children in the Department of Education are all made in various correctional facilities by men. And what's even crazier to me that I find out uh, a little bit appalling is that the DMV, New York State Department of Motor Vehicles, won't even pay people in the street customer service. They'd rather go into Albion Correction Facility and be able to utilize the women as the customer service, and they rather price gouge using customer service from the cities. And, and this is something that's been going on for a long, long time. I'm glad that you mentioned those because, you know, in the abolitionist movement, we tend to look at this holistically and not just limit it to penal conditions because it goes beyond that. Uh, the extortion practices, the fines and fees. You mentioned, for instance, the uh, co-conspirators uh, being Sunni and Cooney, for instance, who are purchasing these goods that have come through prison labor at slave wages. And also you mentioned Corecraft, a $50 million industry. Uh, that does nothing but provide prison uh, labor. And you also mentioned the DMV. Uh, We was talking earlier, Yusuf and I, and he pointed out, I think, what was the statistics you said, that there was $111 million worth of fines and traffic violations written in one year? Yes, fines, fees, and surcharges. $111 million. And New York City gets an additional twenty eight million in fines and fees. And that's not counting, you know, the minimum of three hundred dollars added to every conviction, including traffic infractions and guilty pleas and even for minor offenses. And right. you know, we know how that how how that feeds the system. You know, you can't afford to pay the fee and then next thing you know the person is locked up and it goes on from there. I remember um, the Attorney General, Eric Holder, coming out and talking about um, Ferguson and how the police there were being turned into a revenue generator uh, and being used by the city to, you know, create funds. And it went from like $1 million to $3 million. New York makes that look like a hiccup, like a joke, like we really know how to do corruption here. We can criminalize the hell out of people and squeeze every little piece of uh, money we can out of them. She does... Uh, the organization 13th Forward address these uh, more holistic concerns? Uh, yes, they do. But what it comes with first is being able to talk about the traumas that are not only existing inside the Department of Corrections, but also that the families are going through at this present time and in real time. Mm-hmm. With the package ban, now mm-hmm. the Department of Corrections has now stopped the love packages, which we call, and them allowed to become in. Um, to the, the, the from the family members, what that does is that puts another unwanted strain and bearing on the family dynamic that has already been crumbling for years on. I want to be able to be clear that there are a lot of other government institutions that have failed long before a lot of brothers and sisters have been directly impacted by the criminal justice system. So you have to be able to understand that they're equally yoked, and really that comes from retaliation from the prison violence task force as well as uh, Hoku and as well as Anushi, because they felt that Holt stopped them from going ahead and making solitary confinement some form of punitive punishment. 
So as a retaliation, they've decided to now look through different things and find other retaliatory measures in order to put more toxicity on an already stressful environment. And what they want is they want to be able to maintain that generational wealth that they've been experiencing around these correctional facilities in upstate New York for generations, and they want to make sure it continues for generations to come. For generations to come. Generations to come. Jesse, you want to say something? Yeah, if I could just add to that, I mean, I think just to give a little context about, like, specifically what the legislation is fighting for, where our legislation is, um, we have the No Slavery New York Act, which we've talked about, um, which would make it so you can't be punished, uh, you can't be forced to work. Um, you know, slavery is not, we don't believe that slavery should be punishment for, for a crime, um, you know, that prison is the punishment, Um not that as an abolitionist, I even believe, you know, that punishment should be the goal, you know. Um, but um, in addition to that bill, um, we have the Fairness and Opportunity for Incarcerated Workers Act, which would um, redo basic, like I was saying, it would redo the job training programs inside by setting up a prison labor board um, to look at that. That is made up of members of the organized labor community, a formerly incarcerated person would be on that board. Um, a member of the reentry uh, of a reentry organization, as well as a person from Department of Corrections, so it would be a more you know balanced board um, that would have you know more more looking at it more holistically than a board just made up of docs. Um, and then, in addition to that, um, we would also um, look at the this bill would address the health and safety um, conditions inside because some. Some folks are performing pretty dangerous jobs in our prisons and jails, like asbestos abatement or lead paint removal, without proper training or equipment. Um, and even, I mean, I think that a lot of this, that and that's just you know regular jobs that make the prison run. Um, and folks aren't covered by things like OSHA because they're not considered workers, right? They're they're really considered like property of the. Um, and and um, we believe that these folks should be considered workers and should receive all the same health and safety and worker rights that workers on the outside receive. And I would say, you know, one of the biggest, most significant components of this bill would be to raise the wages for folks inside. Wilfredo mentioned the range is ridiculously low, pennies on the dollar. You know, the range for incarcerated workers starts at 10 cents right now, um, 10 to 65 cents. And we we put in our bill um, a statement on wage because we believe that work labor is labor regardless of where it's performed like the value of that labor is the same right and we don't believe that you know if, if you're not receiving the same wages as workers on the outside um, because it's because of that exception clause in the 13th amendment that allows for slavery as punishment for a crime um, and so we we don't think that just just adding the abolition amendment is enough. We think that we actually need to change the wages as well. And that's where you get to the effect on communities because one in three families go into debt right now supporting an incarcerated loved one. Um, and having and many people who are incarcerated still support their family members as well. They were the sole bread earners before they went into prison or jail. And that the getting 10 cents an hour from a regular wage on the outside is, is a big hit to families and communities. And we know the communities that in, you know, across the country, but in New York, um, 
the communities that are most affected by mass incarceration are black and brown communities, low-income communities, um, but especially black and brown communities. Three and four people incarcerated are, are black or brown. Um, and so that's where we see that this criminal justice system is a direct extension of slavery, right? And and um, that's, you asked about how, you know, our, our movement is kind of like, affecting um the larger picture and it's that it's provide putting money back into these communities that have been exploited for hundreds of years well thank you for that it seems like you have like a one-two punch going you're like okay the abolitionist or the abolition amendment addresses the criminality of enslaving people from beginning to end and then we're going to work on making sure that while they're in there, they're treated as humans and citizens and paid for their work and not forced to labor against their will, and particularly offering safety and precautions that don't exist in the prisons at this time. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Um, Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, uh, I have some questions about that, but before we get into the questions part, uh, we want to play a little bit of a track that includes you. Um, just recently, you did an interview on PBS, Chasing the Dream, with host Shanna Flanagan, and uh, it was about the proposition to propose legislation, legislation to ban prison slave labor with New York Assemblyman Harvard, Harvey Epstein, and uh, that was you and Johnny Perez, accompany, and we'll accompany this clip uh, by the soundtrack from Nas, New York State of Mind Instrumental. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Our guests today are 13th Forward uh, members, Jesse Koklis and also Wilfredo Lacorente. Uh, we'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 Good evening, and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. The American criminal justice system dictates that if you do the crime, you have to do the time. And as far as many people are concerned, those who are imprisoned forfeit their rights as soon as they walk into a cell. It's a view that's actually built into the Constitution itself. The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery at the federal level, actually makes an exception for the incarcerated. And it's that slavery loophole that's allowed the proliferation of forced prison labor across the country. Recently, a growing number of states have passed laws to end the practice of uncompensated prison labor. But, so far, New York State is not one of them. Some lawmakers in Albany want to change that and have introduced legislation to end the practice and require that incarcerated people make at least minimum wage for their work. New York Assemblymember Harvey Epstein, who introduced the recent legislation. Assemblyman, I want to start with you, actually, because I think it might be surprising for some people to realize that the 13th Amendment, which is famed for abolishing slavery, actually has a loophole built into it. Can you expand a little bit on what that is? Yeah, of course. And so we've all heard about the 13th Amendment and how the U.S. Constitution and New York State Constitution mirrors that language, abolishes slavery. The exception is for people who are incarcerated. So there's mandatory slave labor that happens in New York State in their prisons every single day because of state law and then the federal law allows it. Our job is to change the state constitution to stop the mandatory labor and then 
also provide a minimum wage for those people who are voluntarily doing the work while they're incarcerated. Johnny Perez, a prison reform advocate, formerly incarcerated New Yorker who for years sewed sheets and pillowcases for pennies an hour. He was also threatened with and spent three years in solitary confinement. He's now the director of the U.S. Prisons Program at the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. Now, just to give a sense of what kind of work that we're talking about, Johnny, I want to go to you and get a little bit more about your experience um, while you were in prison, specifically working sewing, um, things like pillowcases and sheets. Yeah, thank you for that question, you know, and thank you, Harvey, for bringing, you know, for even introducing this important conversation in the state. And yeah, out of, uh, this, out of six out of 13 years, I worked at, uh, I worked at Kaksaki Correctional Facility for Co-Craft Industry, where I worked as a seamstress, where I sold uh, sheets, socks, pillowcases, uh, you kind of name it. And, uh, you know, we basically made 17 cents on the dollar. There were no sick days. There were no off days. There were no bereavement days. There were, in fact, if I decided not to go to work, you know, as you mentioned in my introduction, um, you will be sent to solitary confinement, which is 23 to 24 hours a day, locked down with little to no human contact. Um, so that was part of my experience dealing with forced labor in New York State. Jessie Cookless, she is a statewide organizer for ending mass incarceration at Citizen Action of New York. And Jesse, from your organization's perspective, um, how do you view the way that uh, this forced prison labor has been incorporated, perhaps in an unconscious way to most Americans, but incorporated into our economies? Yeah, so, um, and just to say again, we're part of the 13-4 Coalition, which is a statewide or, uh, coalition of more than 50 organizations um, from across the state of New York, um, broad broad coalition, and we see um, this as a real problem because it's really the state that's uh, profiting off of this unpaid labor, um, which, as Johnny mentioned, is just pennies on the dollar, and the range in New York State is 10 cents an hour to 65 cents an hour for all types, all, all manner of jobs, from all the jobs that um, folks do to make the prison run, uh, like cleaning and cooking, um, to things like asbestos abatement, lead paint abatement, to the industry jobs, like Johnny mentioned, um, that go to, that prop up state um, industries, creating things like like pillowcases, like Johnny mentioned, but also the furniture that our legislators sit on, the, the desks that our school children sit at. Um, one thing that... Um, you know, really brought this to a lot of people's attention is during the pandemic, folks inside were um, producing personal protective equipment like hand sanitizer without personal protective equipment themselves. And um, the fact that these workers are paid pennies on the dollar, you know, allows um, the state to cost save off, the, off their backs of our incarcerated workers across the state. Abolition. Abolition. That was the PBS interview on March 14, 2023, Chasing the Dream. Host Jenna Flanagan with New York Lawmaker proposes legislation to ban prison slave labor. And the guests were New York Assemblyman Harvey Epstein, prison reform advocate Johnny Perez, and one of our guests tonight, Jesse Kokless, and that was accompanied by Nas, New York State of Mind, the instrumental. So, Jesse, I'll... 
uh, go to you first, just if you had anything else you wanted to add to the end of that, because I know how it is. After you interview, you're like, I wish I would have had a chance to say such and such. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think she did a great job um, feeding a lot of information into a short amount of time. Um, but I will just say that um, what I was mentioning at the end about the cost saving is that, um, you know, paying people pennies on the dollar really like obscures the true cost of incarceration. It's actually, you know, people talk about saving money here and there. The way we, you know, if we were actually paying people what their labor was worth, it would be a lot more expensive to incarcerate people, which is already like super expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars to incarcerate one person. Um, And instead we should be investing this money in our communities um, and in things that actually like, get to the root causes of crime, you know, um, that create true public safety um, instead of, you know, just locking people away and putting them behind this, like, in this, behind this prison wall that's, you know, where things that, that happen there are invisible to the public um, because, it, you know, and then it doesn't actually solve anything. Um, so I'll just add that. One of the things that I wanted to add in is, you know, when we're talking about abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude, two things that are allowed through the 13th Amendment and prior to the existence of the Abolished Slavery National Network, it was in 25 state constitutions as well in varying ways. And you've got two bills here. Uh, one is that I'm aware of is S-225, um, and that provides that no incarcerated individual in any state or local prison, penitentiary, jail, or reformatory shall be compelled or induced to provide labor against his or her will. And that's S-225, which is active. And the other one that I saw um, is S-416A. And it says the purpose of that is the Abolished Penal Servitude Act removes one of the last vestiges of slavery and recognizes that incarcerated individuals should not be compelled or coerced to work against their will. I would say that both of those are addressing the involuntary servitude part and not so much the slavery part. Uh, For the Abolish Slavery National Network, we go by the definition of slavery that is found in Article 1 of the 1926 Slavery Convention, which reads, slavery is the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attached to the right of ownership are exercised. So it's all about the powers attached to the right of ownership, which was mentioned in that interview where they said, you know, when people go into these cells and they're convicted, is as if they forfeited all of their rights as a citizen and a human being. And that is exercising ownership over somebody. When we talk about uh, not having bodily autonomy. <laughs> they literally own you and treat you as a piece of property. Uh, anybody want to comment on that, Jesse or Wilfredo? Well, what what I would like to do is I would like to, to put it in a vacuum and give it a little more context, and let's just go back a little bit. So um, Auburn Correctional Facility in New York was originally made out of wood, and when it burnt down, what the facility decided to do and the Department of Corrections at that time was, is they decided to go to Sing Sing Correctional Facility, which was a reception. And what they did was, is they go ahead and forced people 
to go up to Auburn, New York, and go ahead and rebuild that prison. And what they did was they had barges or ships that went along the river, and hence that coined the phrase that we're going to send you up the river. So for right. me, this is something that New York has been already been going on for a long time, ever since the Jim Crow laws, after the Emancipation Proclamation, where now there were vagrancy laws to be on the side of railroad tracks. Like, I've lived in the movie life in real time after a 20-year prison stint. I've seen people that have gone to call craft industries for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years at a time and literally die in a cell because their family has uh, either been gone because of the length of sentence that they've had and there's no one there to claim the body and they end up having uh, being put into a call craft coffin and being placed in Potter's Field. So for me, I just want to give it a context that slavery exists in New York State right now, currently, today, in real time. And unless yes, someone decides to hold someone accountable, whether it's government from the Department of Corrections, the Department of Education, the SUNY and CUNY schools, when we went to our um, to the Million Dollar Staircase at Albany, we were able to sit down with government officials and show them exactly what particular item inside their office that we were meeting them in was made by someone that was housed in the Department of Corrections in each facility. And you saw mm. that the demographic try, it changed, the narrative changed, because now they were seeing that they were complicit as well in sitting on these chairs, sitting at these desks, and getting the soap from these soap dispensers at and you can see that in their minds, everything changed, and now even more government officials now are signing on to the bills and making sure to advocate and get behind the bills so they can be passed. Thank you, Brother Wilfredo. Um, Jesse, would yeah. you like to say anything? Yeah. Um, I think that we've had, you know, in the as members of the steering committee, which my organization, Citizen Action, is part of and, as, and Wilfredo is a part of, the leadership of this coalition, we've had these conversations um, about, you know, what does abolishing slavery really mean? Um, and I think that's, that's all of, I think our goal is to, and I will speak, maybe speak for my, I mean, we've talked about, you know, how this is the goal of abolition, which is, you know, creating a society that doesn't rely on police and prisons um, and, you know, treats individuals as, um, human beings and, you know, uses, you know, uses more like restorative justice and other practices, you know, whose goal is healing instead of punishment and retribution. So I think those are some of our, you know, that's our long-term vision, but unfortunately it is, it's a long-term plan, right? Like it's not going to happen tomorrow. We're not going to shut, we're not going to shut down all of our prisons tomorrow or even in the next, you know, five years. Um, so what we're, we're trying to, get as many people we're trying to get people out of prison so we can get closer to that and trying to send less people to prison so we can get closer to that so that's that's what we're limited to when we're talking about legislative reform right because legislative reform is still working within the current system that we have the current criminal justice system that we have and so 13-4 tries to reduce the harm of that current system um, and tries to make sure tries to you know ensure that people who are released, you know, don't return back to prison. And that's how we're contributing to abolition. And that's how we're, we think that our, that's why we think that our bills are ab more abolitionist reform or non-reformist reforms, 
um, because we're looking at that long-term goal. Um, but do our bills, community for incarcerated workers, does it technically abolish slavery? We could, we could, you know, debate that, right? Like, is the criminal justice in itself slavery? Is the fact, is it just the fact that people are forced to work? Is it, is it the fact that they're, is it the fact that they're receiving slave wages, the slavery, or is it the power dynamics? Yeah, because we're not going to be able to change the power dynamics until we just like completely kind of burn it down and like grow something new in its place. (laughs) That's, that's at least, that's what I think personally is that the power dynamics that are in the prison now, if that's just the slavery, like we're not going to, we're not going to change that with this bill. No. This is one of the reasons why we have developed a post-election committee, um, because uh, we have to address these issues that go on afterwards. We want to end the practice as well as the law um, of them. So, uh, you know, we're very inclusive about what this is all about. We know that it starts with the legislation where they criminalize lifestyles and peoples and classes, and then it goes to the police who act as slave catchers, then go out hunting people. And we know that they become revenue generators. And in New York, uh, New York, costs more to incarcerate a single individual than anywhere else in the country. The only people that make more money incarceration than New York is the military. Uh, so, for instance, mm-hmm. just pre-trial incarceration in a place like Rikers Island, uh, according to the comptroller there last year, said it's uh, $1,500 a day, which is effectively $560,000 a year to incarcerate a single human being for one year. Um, And we see that as a part of slavery because now you're warehousing bodies for profit. You're turning them into commodities that uh, generate revenues. And that happens uh, all the way through the system, including uh, the courts. Remember, we started with the Khalif Browder story. And remember what happened to him three years in Rikers Island without receiving a trial. And each year he's generating a million dollars and still going through all of these traumas over an alleged crime that he did not commit a stealing of. And then even after the incarceration, slavery still goes on because once you've been affected by the 13th Amendment, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you get your rights back. And there's at least 11 states that don't allow you to vote after that without like a governor's pardon. We're talking about six Mm -hmm. million living people that can't exercise a vote. So still subject to this dehumanizing factor of the 13th Amendment that turned them into property. Um, I I do want to say one other thing, too. Uh, Both of you let me know that you would only be here for an hour. Uh, We appreciate that greatly. We're about 15 minutes from the top of the hour right now. The show will go on for two hours. We'll be talking about New York throughout the entirety of it. If you want to stay longer, we welcome you to do so, but we respect that you have a limited time. Um, So if you want to uh, comment on what I was just saying, we'll do that, and then we'll give you an opportunity to say whatever you want to say to our listening audience. Uh, We've got people all over the world that listen to this program. Um, And just let them know where they can go to help you and things like that. So we'll start with you, Brother Wilfredo. Uh, Would you like to make a comment on what was said? Oh, absolutely. I just feel that there is a lot of worry that I have when a lot of the brothers and sisters that are housed, the data says is very clear that they will return. So if you don't provide them with an opportunity to become gainfully employed or opportunities to address housing or an opportunity to just feel um, Mm -hmm. that they have a sense of belonging within society, what happens is they're going to revert back to what they know, and that's crime. And recidivism is something 
that you have to take a look at because yes. it's very clear. So, so to me, I feel that from this money that everyone's talking about, because we're talking about bodies and and believe me, they're going to commodify these particular wards of the state, whether it's on a city level or on a state level, and they're going to get their due ration for what they need to get done because um, 90% of the order of operations that happens in all state correctional facilities are done by people that wear green and that are housed in these correctional facilities. Everything from making to making the meals, from sorting the mail, to making sure packages come from the P.O. boxes from the postal offices all the way carried up all the way in the van to correctional facilities to their package rooms. Even for the commissary to come off the trucks and the commissary to be sold by the men in various mm-hmm. commissary cycles. thing is, this particular thing about labor, we're not really talking about it whether you want to split heads and say it's programming or whether you want to say it's uh, labor. The idea is that if they never placed any punitive um, sanctions on programming, they'd have to hire more and more people, officers, more civilians to come in and do these particular jobs, and that doesn't what the what department doesn't want to do. So for me, I feel that now when we don't have any skills and we don't learn anything while we're inside, then what happens when we come out? We just get passed along to other government institutions, and we put right. a strain on more economies in New York State because you're going to get passed along to the homeless shelter. You're going to get passed along to welfare. You're going to get passed along to these particular places. And if you don't have any skills, you can't commodify and you can't get a return on your investment on yourself. So I feel that we have to be real mindful when we do this legislation, even after it's done, that there's more work from that money that they take away from corrections that needs to be invested on programs in order to change the culture and change the narrative within the black and brown community. You're absolutely right, Wilfredo. It's um, as if with these high recidivism rates that go as high as 75% uh, that they want people to come back, like reusable resources, so that they can just generate more money on them again and at the same time control populations and classes. Because we know in certain places in New York, like Rikers Island, what is that, 95% black populated in Rikers Island? And three-quarters of all people who are formerly incarcerated in New York are black and brown. Three freaking quarters of them. Yeah, it's as if and not only that. Only, not only mm-hmm. that. Remember, just five or seven years ago, we were just removed from the census from these particular upstate correctional facilities that were forcing us to go ahead and put onto the census in upstate New York, so that way they could shift the funds and they could receive other programming and other funds going that way. Now, with the help of a lot of brothers and sisters that were in Albion and Greenhaven Correctional Facility, they put in legislation that is in place now that now the last place where you convicted is the last place where you're going to be on your census. Thank you, Brother Wilfredo. Uh, Jesse, would you like to make any comments? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, just to add to that, what, he, what Wilfredo was saying about the census is, you know, as we know, where you're counted um, means that the resources are sent there. Um, and so that's that was really important because, you know, we don't want folks to be counted somewhere where they're not um, getting, where they're not allowed to vote, right? Um, And where these upstate communities are advocating um, for 
for the folks inside prison um, to be counted in their community for resources to go there to prop up that industry. Um, and that kind of gets to this whole idea that this is really a whole industry, right? Where right. the state is, is profiting um, off of the backs of our communities, our black and brown communities, especially, um, and working, you know, and, and low income communities. Um, and we, we just really need to change that. And that's one of the goals of our, our campaigns and instead invest in these communities instead in, in, on the front end, um, instead of criminalizing uh, the behavior that, you know, criminalizing folks needs, right. And sending them to prison and jail. Um, I did, I did want to just, um, kind of like talk a little bit more about the, the, the aspect of that's the pathways to employment, post-incarceration, the whole like job aspects of this, because I think this is, um, of our campaign, this I think this has been a really um, popular um, idea. Um, I think um, getting people employed post post release um, is something that businesses can really get behind. That moderates and conservatives in in New York um, can get behind. It's 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 a kind of like a no brainer, right? Everyone everyone um, can get behind the idea of of giving people the resources to be employed and be productive members of their communities once they're released. And our bill opens up a lot of possibilities for that. Um, like re- there's, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, there's a lot of ways that this could look. Um, and it's up to that prison labor board um, that our, our bill would establish, but it could be something like, you know, training for specific trades in prison and then really a direct pathway to that, those union jobs upon release. That would be so transformational. Um, whereas right now, I don't, the, the, that type of like skill specific training isn't, doesn't exist or it's not enough where, where like, you know, for example, there's some like um, beauty training or cosmetology, cosmetology training in the women's facilities, but there's only like, three available per class. There's very limited, right? So that's not, it, it's not in effect, that's, that's nothing, you know, where the majority of people can't even access it. So we need to really beef those up um, and, and create programs that translate to jobs upon release. Um, not just, it's not just for a hobby or to keep people busy while they're there, but something that actually gives them real skills that will um, lead to their success, to a successful reentry. Um, and then I also wanted to, you know, that bill, obviously, the Fairness and Opportunity for Incarcerated Workers Act, there's a lot there. And, and I think we still do have, um, I think we have to acknowledge that in New York, it's a really politically challenging time like this, especially because there's been really public and really, really um, contentious fights around the bail reform that we, the the really, you know, incredible landmark bail reforms that we passed in, in 2019 and 2020. And so the, the environment for passing criminal legal reform is, um, is pretty difficult right now, unfortunately. Um, and so we, we definitely have a lot more work to do in, in kind of like educating the public about this bill um, and, um, yeah, to get, to get this bill closer to passing. I think we do have a, a lot more work to do, but, the No Slavery in New York Act that would add the abolition amendment to our constitution is a no-brainer, I think. And I think that every time we have a conversation about it to a legislator, whether they're, 
you know, a criminal justice ally, like a true progressive in New York, or whether they're like a moderate Democrat, um, upstate, downstate, midstate. Um, every the, the reception has been really positive. Um, no, everyone, no one wants to say that slavery is a New York value, and people have been slaters have been signing on to this bill. Almost every day we get a new sign on, um, and as I said, this is the first year that we've really had a legislative campaign and strategy. And we we really believe that it's going to have a successful um, yes vote in the state assembly and the state senate this year. And um, once the budget gets wrapped up, um, um, it's due April 1st, um, then we'll really, um, you know, be pushing our bill again for the remainder of session until the beginning of June. And we we strongly believe that it's going to be successful this year. Um, and in New York, getting a constitutional amendment passed is quite a process, so that would just be the first step. I'll have to get passed again and then go to the voters. Um, but we, we believe that it's, that it's looking really good and that this win is going to help move forward our other bill and, and give, a lot more, give a lot more momentum to that one as well. So I just wanted to, you know, make sure I give it, you know, the state of current affairs in New York and our bills. Um, mm-hmm. And then... If folks want to, you know, support our bills, what they can do is um, go to our website at 13forward.com. That's 13thforward.com. And there's um, there's a, a button that says, you know, take action. And they can call their, if they're a New York um, member, if they live in New York, they can call their legislators and tell them that they support these bills. Um, and every call that a legislator gets really makes a difference. Um, and even if you don't live in New York, like I definitely encourage you um, to still call um, or, or write. Um, you can write to us too. Our, um, our contact is on the website. Um, and if you um, know if you know anyone who's incarcerated, um, they can also contact us. If you have any incarcerated loved ones in New York State or any state and, and just want to like send their, their stories or their messages of support, like we'll welcome that. Um, we also, um, I wanted to mention too, that we, we have started engaging um, a lot more in the last few months with, with currently incarcerated folks. Um, you know, Wilfredo and many others who have um, been active, who are formerly incarcerated have um, started, you know, connecting with people that they knew um, who are currently incarcerated or at their facilities. And now we have, you know, over, I think it's almost 400, 300-something people who have, who have joined, uh, who are currently incarcerated, who have joined our coalition. Um, and having their voices is really the heart of our campaign and, and so important, and we're going to continue building that, that part of our movement as well. Thank you very much, Jesse. Appreciate that greatly. Um, Brother Wilfredo, uh, we are coming up on the top of the hour, and uh, as I said, I understand you guys have to leave. Uh, so I want to give you an opportunity to just uh, tell our audience whatever you want to tell them, um, what you think they should know, and point them in any direction that you think they should go. Well, for me, thank you. Uh, for me, the most important thing is we have to have this uh, accountability component with government in place. The most important thing is that's going to, and, and me and Jesse have had many of a discussion like this, is that until there is a SUNY or CUNY chancellor that is going to have to come out and basically say, you know what, I think this is something that's wrong, and we are no longer going to 
purchase items from Coldcraft Industries. Until that happens and they, they are finally complicit, they are definitely in a place where they need to be. Um, they need to be checked, and they need to be able to understand that we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And this is something that's really important and goes to the heart of the campaign. And that's just what I would like to everyone else to know. Thank you, Brother Wilfredo. Uh, to both of you, uh, the ASNN is, uh, well, is your advocate uh, as well. Um, we will do what we can to make sure that these bills pass in New York. Uh, we have a network meeting coming up this Thursday, and next Friday we have our state operations meeting. Uh, if you can send someone to attend, please do so, uh, because we might be able to provide some resources and assistance that would help get this through uh, even more securely. I want to say thank you for both of you being here with us today on Abolition Today. We are grateful for your voices and your work. Uh, and we commend you on um, your commitment to freedom in this country and getting past this dark time where slavery and, le- and involuntary servitude is not only legal, but practiced and accepted as normal. Uh, thank you so much. And you guys have a blessed evening. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And keep us posted as well. Keep yes. us posted. For sure. We will. And thank you for the work you're doing. Really appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, what we're going to do is go into our music break at the top of the hour. Uh, today we've got Be Free from J. Cole, and it's a oh, match yeah. mix called Two Sides to a New York Story. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Our guests today have been Jesse Coakley, Statewide Director for Ending Mass Incarcerations at Citizen Action of New York, and Wilfredo. Acuente, 13th Forward Campaign Leader, Educator, and Formerly Incarcerated Advocate. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Every man, woman, and child in Mississippi can rationalize how they have always been friends to the colored man. All of a sudden, they wake up here one morning and, and, and are told that what the way they've operated for the last hundred years is wrong. This is a hard thing to just tell a man that he spent his life doing something wrong. He doesn't have to believe it. And then all of a sudden, we're some kind of demon. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be White police officers don't have to be in black areas. I they put don't white have to police be. It's a matter of the, the effect of the state 70, occupying those forces, sir. How about 70 to 75 percent of the crime in my city takes place in black cities? How about your attitude reinforces the problematic uh, All right, I think this is a debate. that prevails in a culture, sir. This well, is a debate. How about you reduce crime? Okay, do-rag, pants-sagging, uh, Jordans. That's like 75 percent of like everybody. We had just came out the house, and we was walking towards the soldiers down the block. And they didn't ask for no ID. They just said, search yourself. Put your hands, put your hands up so they could search them. And they searched me. I, I was asking him, what is it for? And they say someone just got robbed around the corner, and he fit the description just like that. Pulled me over and started searching me and all that. And me being the person I am, I felt like it was a problem with it, so I gave him a problem. And long story short, I ended up getting a broke tooth. My baby mother's mother witnessed them beating me in the back of the car on my way to the precinct. I came home from doing 13 days on Rikers Island. 
And when I finally seen the judge the second time, she couldn't figure out what was the reason for them stopping me in the first place. Degrading. My rights and violated. Be little. I simply can't just walk down the street without being accused for something that I have nothing to do with. Let's get to a point they're getting used to it now. You see cops, you automatically know they're gonna search you. If your pants off, you're behind, they're gonna search you. But every kid's not a criminal. Every kid not doing nothing bad. But that's what they do. The department says there are no quotas. Well, I can tell you, I'm a police officer, there are quotas in the NYPD. Are they lying? Absolutely. It's illegal for them to admit it. They come from different precincts, largely minority neighborhoods in Brooklyn or the Bronx, but their stories are remarkably similar. They tell you this to your face. Black and Hispanics between 14 to 21. They must get stopped. They're plaintiffs in a federal class action lawsuit that claims the NYPD is violating a 2010 state ban on quotas, speaking out together for the first time. At the end of the month, these officers, whoever don't have that arrest, or those few summonses, they're pressured to find something. You might not see nothing. You're supposed to be visible. You might not see anything, but you go hunting, like bounty hunting for an arrest, locking up some, some old guy, some homeless guy, finding somebody who's riding a bicycle on the sidewalk, who's spinning, and you bring him in. The problem is when you go hunting, when you pull any type of numbers on a police officer to perform, we are gonna go to the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable? Of course, we're gonna go to LGBT community, we're gonna go to the black community, we're gonna go to those people that have no vote, that have no power. If we start doing what we're doing in Midtown Manhattan, a phone call to the mayor's office is going to be made. That's going to be the end of it. We're the predators, they are the prey. The worst thing you can have is a police officer that needs an arrest for the month. So you're all minorities. How does that make you feel? It's, it's horrible. This is something coming from the top that trickles its way down. And this is why we're all here today. Are we all alone fighting on our own? Please give me a chance. Abolition. 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 Man, all we want to do is be free. You just heard J. Cole, be free, in the Max Mix, with two sides to a New York story. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Oh, man. You know, Max, don't... <laughs> It was so much I wanted to say while our guests were here, but we just didn't have the time. I had so many questions, so many things. I, yeah, so we have uh, we have a little bit less than an hour, but we can cover a lot of stuff in this hour, Max. Well, I, I do want to uh, take a moment to open up our phone lines because I know a couple of people want to call in. So yeah, I see a couple of already, New Yorkers on the line. If you're already on the line, please press one on your keypad so that we know you have a question or comment and it puts you in queue. If you're not online or on the phone line, the dial in at 515-605-1111. Uh, 
888-646-9814. And remember to press 1 on your keypad. If you don't press 1, we won't know that you have something to say. So remember <laughs> to do that. Two sides of a New York story max mix that I put together um, was showing the two sides being the police. We're telling you with no, in no uncertain terms, we have quotas. We're hunting mm-hmm. people. We are the predators. They are the prey. They're telling us to go out and pump up these numbers, and they're doing it and admitting it out loud on national television. And then you had the voices right. of the people who are the prey, who are being hunted, telling you how this is affecting their lives. It's destroying entire communities. And this is what we talk about when we see modern-day slavery uh, with these slave catchers. And, you know, every time I say that, some of my more professional friends are like, Max, don't say it like that. All cops aren't bad. And I'm like, no. There's no such thing as a good slave catcher. And I know if you're a policeman out there, retired policeman, you don't see yourself like that. But let me ask you this question that I've asked several times. How many slaves do you need to catch to be a slave catcher? Hmm. If you've only had one bad arrest this year, would you wish that you didn't have to arrest that person and send them into the prison system uh, because of an unjust law or because you were on a quote or whatever, if you just did that one time, remember, there's a million people just like you, a million law enforcement officers. That's a million people who have been wrongfully uh, incarcerated. All you got to do is one. That's it. How many people you got to murder to be a murderer? How many people you got to rape to be a rapist? You only need to catch one slave to be a slave catcher. And we have turned our police departments into revenue generators that hunt people. And their history traces all the way back to slave catchers. I see we got a couple of hands up. So let's go ahead and bring in the first one, which is 8130. You are here with us on Abolition Today. Hey, Nene. Hi. (laughs) Hi, guys. I'm from California. How are you? you? Uh, Peace and welcome to the program. Uh, What's your question? Thank you. I just wanted to tell Nene? you guys, thank you. Um, it's Shanae, but um, Shanae. you can okay. call me Nene. <laughs> I just really wanted to say thank you for having this podcast. Um, I got introduced to it about a, a month ago from Yusuf, and I've been dialed in ever since, and it's really been opening up my my eyes, my mind, my heart, and I just want to um, say thank you. And I really like the fact, um, Max, that you really had ingeminated on what abolition slavery is because, you know, everybody has their own definition, but we want to make sure and that we, you know, specify what really it means, you know, so people won't have their own thoughts, you know? So I just really like that you yes. really eliminated on that. Thank you very much. And you're right. Uh, you could ask a dozen people what is slavery and get a dozen different answers. Uh, and we don't want it to be that way. So for the ASNNN, we go by the Harvard Bellagio guidelines on the legal definition of slavery, which is signed onto by dozens of countries, including the United States, on multiple occasions. So this is something we could all agree on, that slavery is the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the rights, all of the powers attached to the rights of ownership are exercised. And once you take away a person's citizenships, take away their natural rights and their uh, national rights, then you literally own that person. And that's what it says right in our Constitution. Thank you for wow, your yeah, comments. That, 
Shadee. Thank you. Um, thank you, too. And you guys have a good day. You, too. Thank have you, Have a blessed too. evening. It's good to hear uh, that every now and then that we're doing a great job up here. Let's go ahead and bring in our other caller. Um, 8514, you're here with us on Abolition Today. Could you state your name, question, or comment? Be our guy, Tony. Peace. This is Tony Crane. How's it going, everyone? Hey, What's peace, happening, Tony? Tony? Out there in New York? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Man, this was, a, um, this was an awesome episode uh, to be able to listen to. Um, and uh, I, I remember when the... Um, because the um, the young lady spoke on it and said something about the hand sanitizers that were being produced by the inmates up here. I remember I, t- I told you guys about that. Um, remember I was telling you because uh, I saw my brother was telling me, and then I happened to come across the bottle, and I remember getting a chance to call in the abolition today and tell you guys about it when it was going yep. on. That was pretty. Um, yeah. That was pretty cool. Um, but um, you know. Everything that you guys have been going over tonight about New York and how the pigs are up here is true. And um, Max and Yusuf, you know, I always say there is no such thing as a good cop because there isn't. Right. I mean, there might be good people that are cops, right. but they're not good cops. You know the, what I'm saying? It's impossible. Is not good. The profession Absolutely. itself is built on slave catching. Absolutely. And look, look what happened to me the other night. Well, unfortunately, I got into an accident two days ago. I'm, I'm all right, but, but like a, a couple of days before that, I got pulled over by a police officer for no reason. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't doing anything. He uh, he tailed me. You know, close as close as it was unbelievably close. So I was creeped out, and I, you know, he says I went over the line a little bit. I'm like, what are you talking about? It was it was Saturday night, so he was mm-hmm. trying to insinuate that I was drunk. And, you know, of course, I was irate. Not only was I not drunk, but you were making me late for work. So he goes on to say that I had an attitude, right? He goes, uh, well, you know, next time you don't have an attitude, this will go fa- go faster. I was like, I didn't have an attitude. I say the fact. He goes, okay, well, you know what? Matter of fact, just wait right real quick. He goes back and writes me a ticket. Comes back. And says, well, yeah, so since you want to have an attitude, I'm going to go ahead and give you a ticket now. All right, oh, really? Okay, fine. Well, then we can go ahead and fight that. So I'm waiting because, I, you know, I mailed it in and everything. Because the ticket says that I made it a, you know, like a, um, an illegal lane change. Like, what? So this is what they do. Like you said, they, this is what they do all the time. I've been, I've been stopped countless oh, times by New York police officers for no reason. Walking around the corner. Cop pulled me over. I said, he says, I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Why are you stopping me right now? You're in a car. You know what I mean? He was in, they were in a car. I turned the corner and they pulled up on me and and just stopped me. You know, um, so, yeah. one of the stories that I had to do some research on, and I remember when it first came out, but, you know, I had to remind myself of what state I'm talking about, New York. You know what I mean? Like, if it ain't going on in New uh-huh. York. You can't show it anywhere because New York is among the worst. And just a few years ago, back in 2017, the city had to pay $56.5 million to people mm-hmm. who they had, the New York Police Department had written bogus tickets to. 
$56.5 million they had to pay out. And that was all over bogus tickets. Kind of like what you said. 900,000 of them. 900,000 bogus tickets. And we just mentioned earlier that they generate $111 million in tickets and fines. This is a huge industry in itself. And they do not want to see those numbers reduce. They want those numbers to go up. Remember when uh, de Blasio said about his son, who is uh, his his black son, uh, that he Mm -hmm. could be uh, Trayvon Martin, I think it was, or somewhere along those lines. In any case, the police all went on a strike, and they decided they weren't going to write any more tickets, and they were going to cost the city money. They cost the city so damn much money that they had to be ordered to go back to writing tickets because it was costing the city something like $20 million a week in lost revenue. Wow. So yeah, is you it don't really fight a it. crime? No, it's not. Because you don't fight it, then they're going to get away with it. Like that story I told right. you before when they tried to blame me for having the beer bottle in the backseat of the, uh, underneath the cab. The cab, they tried to give me a DUI ticket. I was in a cab. <laughs> I was in the Bronx. <laughs> One of the things that makes New York's bills and 13 Forward stand out is uh, that they're directly addressing these, the uh, involuntary servitude aspect with their bills. In other states, mm-hmm. uh, what they're doing there is inserting anti-slavery language so that they're the 13th Amendment, and then it becomes a state's rights issue. So if the 13th Amendment says slavery is okay, the states could go, no, our Constitution said we don't want slavery. That's not a value in this country. But none of them are addressing the labor issues directly, at least not within their bill. So that makes New York stand out. Um, and it does uh, have me wondering about the future. I was talking to Yusef earlier, and I was like, man, will this put people in a position where if you're guaranteed minimum wages in prison and you're guaranteed work, will people start committing felonies just to get jobs? <laughs> you know, that's crazy. Like, it'd be like that's a crazy. That's a crazy job thing core. About, you can't yeah. find a job outside, so you you know you go commit a two year felony and you got two years worth of labor. That's insane. Uh, last thing I want to say is I am very happy to hear um, that there's work on on board in New York State because I don't know if you remember Matt mm-hmm. a couple of years ago I was asking you about it because I was I read the Constitution and I didn't see anything in the constitution about slavery at all and i was right seriously concerned so i'm very happy i'm very happy i appreciate the two people that were on the call earlier as well as you and yusuf you guys are doing amazing work in the in the antebellum period they tried to keep half the states uh pro-slavery and half the states anti-slavery and it's very much the same way with those exception clauses that were adopted. 25 states adopted exception clauses allowing for slavery and involuntary servitude in some form or combination, and 25 states didn't have anything at all put into their constitution, which means they just let you know their citizens be subject to what was in the federal constitution, whereas the other 25 not only wanted you to be subject to that, but they want to remind you that the state also agrees with this. In a place like Georgia, for instance, their constitution says that you can be subject to slavery and involuntary servitude not only if you're convicted, but also for contempt of court. So if you throw up the middle finger to a judge, you could become state property in Georgia. 
and in, you remember before they removed their exception clauses, the grandfather of all exception clauses in Vermont had three that included debts and fines. If you didn't pay your debts and fines, you were subject to slavery. And if you were under the age of 21, oh no, over the age of 21, and you agreed to it, you could be a slave. Like it has multiple exceptions in there. And now it simply says slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited, which is awesome. That's it. You know, Max, I want to give a shout out to Isabel Cannon. She's literally live tweeting, you know, from the uh, ASNN uh, Twitter profile. And she's been tweeting out the entire show. So definitely want to give her a shout out for that. She is uh, something else. She is a member of the ASNN administration team. Um, and uh, thank you so much for that. Bestie, make sure you follow us on Twitter, as a matter of fact, at the Abolish Slavery National Network, uh, so that you can follow these tweets she's putting out and also get up-to-date news as of the things that the Abolish Slavery National Network is involved in. Um, just so people know who that is, the Abolish Slavery National Network believes in no slavery, no exceptions. It's a national coalition fighting to abolish constitutional slavery and involuntary servitude in all forms for all people. And so far, our success rate has been phenomenal. We're up to eight states when there was only one for 158 years in this country. And now we have, as I said earlier, uh, a dozen or 13 more on the table doing the same thing, including New York. So, yes, it is amazing and epic. national history that has never been seen before. It is the beginning of change and something, a door will open that we've never seen open before, and we're ready to start exploring what that looks like. Yusuf? You you hit the nail on the head right there, Max. You know, just thinking where it started. You know, you're talking about something starting from the bottom, now we're here. You know, just in the, the short period of time, you know, to, to see where we are now. I mean, I'm even just looking at the dashboard right now, and I'm seeing so many different states represented just in the people that are on the call-in line. You know, we have so many states represented, so many to come. Like, we, there are people, you know, like Shanae and, and Alex, where I just met them, and now they're slavery abolitionists, and you know, so it's a lot of people that are just getting this word, and it's it's growing. You know, we talked about chaos theory last last week, right, Max? Mm-hmm. Complexity and theory. And this is yeah. how it works. Yeah, complexity theory. You know, recognizing the patterns. You know, yes. so the word is getting out. You know, you know, you were that butterfly who flapped its wings for me. You know, back in uh, 2010, the first words out of your mouth to me about what do you know about the 13th Amendment? (laughs) And that's how it works. it was just on from there. Yeah, because you had me. You know, here, you know, I consider myself a legal scholar, you know, but uh, when you hit me with that one, I had to pause. And, you know, I think it took me a few weeks before I even got back to you because I had to do a deep dive into the 13th Amendment. Because you think you know until you realize that you don't know, you know, and especially we, I encourage everybody to go read that Bellagio Harvard guidelines on the legal parameters of slavery. It's, uh, it's about eight pages. And I mean, it really, really, really breaks down what slavery is, 
what do they mean by attaching uh, powers attaching to the right of ownership of uh, possession being a foundational to slavery like they really break it down and then when you read that i think it will expand people's minds and to stop comparing everything else to slavery except slavery and start calling it exactly what it is it's slavery right it's not yes you know we're not talking about slave wages although yes that's appropriate but that's just describing symptoms we're trying to get to the root cause of slavery, which is slavery. <laughs> yeah, a crime against humanity. That's literally what it is, uh, a crime against humanity. Seeing legalized slavery, involuntary mm-hmm. servitude, and even human trafficking. Uh, we've talked about the human trafficking aspect here on multiple occasions, like Vermont is sending their inmates over to Mississippi in a place where they never committed a crime. Arizona is a right. hub for for-profit private prisons that accept inmates from all over the country, including Hawaii. Uh, there's a prison that was built that at one point only housed Hawaiians, which is like, how the hell is that even possible? Because you have a private prison, we get to sh- we have to ship our, our people who are uh, accused of a crime uh, across the ocean to a for-profit private prison so that they can right. make money. It's just nuts and the hypocrisy is beyond belief because you have uh the united states speaking out about the uyghurs in china and prison labor in china and prison labor in other nations while they are the largest uh, practitioner of involuntary servitude on the planet right here Uh, and particularly with minorities we have more black men incarcerated in the united states than the top five populated African nations do combined. Think about that. And they've got twice our total population. So it's just nuts. I see we have another Mind caller. Blowing. Let's go ahead and bring them in. That's that's our guy. That's our guy. Six five four three, you are here with us on abolition today. Uh what's your name and question or comment? What up family? What's, what's up? up? What's up? Fibo. Dennis Fibo, one of the founders of the Abolish Slavery National Network, as well as the lead organizer in New Jersey for their efforts with Amendment the Thirteenth. Welcome back, brother. Amen, amen. I'm so glad you guys are still rocking strong. Yeah, we still dropping them jewels, bro. Uh what yeah. do you want to say, or uh, what questions or comments do you have? Yeah, what's going on in Jersey? That's right. Yeah, we're here in Jersey. We're ready to, you know, we already started kicking up. Uh, we're a coalition building phase right now, you know, just re- reaching out to all the people who originally stood and just confirm it so we can push. Uh, but we're still in the beginning. We still got the votes to go and all that. Um Interesting that New York was on, just because as a native New Yorker and a New, a New Jersey resident, I am someone who runs a business. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I understand the importance of New Jersey and New York having to work together on this, especially post anything post. A lot of the legal framework. Yeah, post-election, like even the way uh, New York was engaging with New Jersey, the homelessness population, um, Newark and New York City were in court. They keep dumping the problem on each other. 
right? So for those that are justice impacted, they have to learn how to play between these lines. Like if you know you're homeless or you want, <coughs> excuse me, real serious drug treatment, um, then you know to go to New York. Don't even try with New Jersey. You want proper legal assistance, you call New York, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to efforts, New York is going to be, and I see here the ability of New York is moving. My only concern with bills that are stacked like the one New York got is that it gives them a little much too much room to try and negotiate. Uh, if we're talking reentry, if we're talking wages, like I think that's going to, I mean, I agree with it. You have to litigate it. I'm just wondering if that's going to be as essential to get slavery uh, on the ballot um, and how much support they've gotten in New York for it. But I just see, like, us bridging the efforts together um, because it does impact. Everybody lives here, works there, and vice versa. That's right. Uh, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey myself, and New York was considered our sister state. We, you know, we was always just back and forth, back and forth. I went to school in New York in Manhattan uh, for a couple of years there. So, yeah, uh, I think it would be a good idea maybe for New Jersey and New York uh, to unify in their efforts and make a public statement out of it. Your bill uh, in New Jersey is like Texas and others uh, that never had any language at all. And New Jersey, by the way, was the last one to uh, ratify the 13th Amendment, uh, amazingly. But nonetheless, uh, your bill introduces language that prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude in order to protect the citizens of your state. Is that correct, uh, Dennis? Yeah, we have to – our fight is to insert language – um, the only pushback we got was just the whole acknowledging of uh, forced labor by the state of New Jersey. I think um, the DOJ felt some type of way. They didn't want that. I guess it would be a missup, but it would be a mission to a crime. So we still have to figure out if that part's going to get debated. Um, or we, sh- I know, I still haven't talked to Angela McKnight, who's a sponsor, to see what she. Um, she's been able to test the waters to see what people are feeling this this time around, and we do have a different um, Senate speaker or Senate president. Sorry, this year. So all a bunch of different characters that were involved the first time around. But for the audience, the first time around, it was the Assembly speaker and the Senate president who did not allow the slavery uh, question to go to the ballot, and they prevented it from doing so by just not placing it on the agenda and ignoring it altogether. That is so sneaky. You get to have one person decide whether or not slavery is going to be legal in this state. That's amazing. Hey, we've got another caller I want to bring in and get a chance to speak as well. 4288, uh, you're on Abolition Today with Max Yusuf and right now Dennis Febo. Uh, State your name and question or comment got to be Abraham. Hey, Max, you said it's uh, Abraham. Uh, I just want hey, to let the people who might be on hold go. I've been speaking a lot in the previous podcast. I could still inquire. It's just I want to give others a chance who are on the line to who who don't know the network as much or are kind of first-timers to ask. Um, for those listening in, uh, Abraham is one of the organizers in 
lead organizer in North Carolina. North Carolina is a unique state. It's uh, the only other state that has the same constitutional language as North Carolina is California, whereas they have removed slavery but still allow for involuntary servitude. And as we all know, there's not much difference between the two of those uh, at all. So uh, what kind of, what was your question or comment, Abraham? Oh, um, well, I guess I, I, I guess I can go. I was just saying since I typically do inquire a lot, if there are other people on the line, they can go first. But um, if that's fine with you, I can go. Well, we do have a music track coming up uh, after we finish here with you and Dennis. So if you do have something you want to ask, we could do that real quick. Um, no? So okay. It was a really good um, – I, I really enjoyed your guys' podcast today. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm cooking dinner, but it was a great way to pass the time. Now, what New York is doing different from our operations in North Carolina is they're also putting in legislation to basically change the entire prison – uh, industry when it comes to wages, labor, and the culture behind accountability, trying to find ways to reduce mass incarceration. Um, but in North Carolina, we actually are not focusing on those things. And when we introduced our bill, um, we told specifically our representatives to not mention those things. So do you think the reason why certain states might be including more in addition to abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude? have been successful at it as compared to other states where it's kind of like, uh, like like in our situation where it's more of we really can't focus on those other things until we have this in our constitution uh, amended. So any uh, your guys' thoughts on that? I um, appreciate it. I, I think up to, up to this point, as I said, unique uh, New York is unique in the bills that they're presenting. All mm-hmm. the other states so far have been focused primarily on removing the language which allows slavery and involuntary servitude or inserting anti-slavery language that prevents it in order to protect their citizens. So it's something worth watching and we'll support it and uh, see how it works out. Um, Dennis, did you want to say anything else before we get in after our music break? No, brother, I'm everybody luck. All right, thanks, Dennis. Good talking to you, brother. I'm going to reach out to you during the week. Thanks, brother. Peace. I'm here, bro. Yusuf, you were saying something? Yeah, I wanted to say something real quick, you know, because one thing you mentioned New York is unique, and it really is. New York loves creating boards. That's one of the main things New York loves. So <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that they're creating the prison labor board, you know, because they love making boards in New York, you know. And additionally, there have been a lot of different bills that have worked their way through in New York when it comes to uh, parole, banning the box. So it's sort of like this buildup, you know, that uh, I'm glad they're to this point now that they're talking about prison slavery and eventually, you know, they're going to buy into where we're saying, you know, it's all slavery. It's not just the labor within the prison, but it's so much more to it. So, I just wanted to add that, that they're getting there. Right. They're really getting Thank there. Thank you. All right. Um, we're going to go ahead and listen to a track that talks about plea bargains. Because, you know, in the United States, 
95% of all cases end in a plea bargain, all federal cases end in a plea bargain, which is outrageous. It means that the Sixth Amendment mm-hmm. is only applied as much as 5% of the time. And that's supposed to be one of our main constitutional rights. Uh, so we have a discussion here about whether or not they're constitutional from R&R Law Group. And it's also going to be followed by Raphael Sadiq of Tony Tony Tone, uh, and he's going to be doing his song, Rikers Island. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition Today. Alan Dershowitz, in his article, he says most plea bargains, plea agreements, are unconstitutional. So if you're not familiar with criminal law, a plea deal or a plea bargain is an agreement made by a defendant, so somebody who's been charged with a crime, and a prosecutor, somebody who is representing the government and charging the person with the crime. They come to terms and they come to an agreement and they say, I know I've been charged with this crime and it has these penalties, but I'm gonna take a deal, I'm gonna make a deal with you, and in uh, the benefit of that deal is I'm gonna get a reduced sentence. So the penalties would be what they are here, and the prosecutor is gonna offer you a deal, you're gonna take the deal, and you're gonna close the case. It's gonna save the government from having to prosecute you and go through the expense and the time of a trial, and you're gonna get a better deal because you're taking a plea agreement, whereas the penalties would be worse if you went to trial and lost. Well, Mr. Dershowitz says that this is really unconstitutional because you have a right under the Sixth Amendment to have a trial by a jury. You have a right to go through due process and find yourself in a court, in front of a court, in front of a judge, in front of a jury, and defend yourself. It's part of what's called due process. The problem with that is that prosecutors will ask for harsher penalties if you actually exercise that right. If you go through the court process and you say, I want my day in court, If you are convicted, then they'll impose more serious, harsher penalties. And so what Mr. Dershowitz is saying is that if you decline a plea bargain, you're going to receive a much harsher penalty. That's a violation of the right to a Sixth Amendment, so right to your trial by jury. You have that right, and it's being watered down because the prosecutor's offices are creating these incentives against going to trial. If you go to trial, it will be worse. In the criminal defense world, we call this a trial tax. And it's something that we see very, very frequently. Way too many. I said it's way too many in Rikers Island. And you may not be in Rikers Island. You may be in Rikers Island in your own mind. Nevertheless, you got to unleash yourself. Everybody, everybody. Too many.
abolition. 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 Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. That was our plea agreements unconstitutional by the R&R Law Group, and that was followed by Raphael Sadiq, Rikers Island. And I didn't know you were going to slam the, uh, the cell. <laughs> the cell door on me, Max. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> wow, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I definitely hope we get the opportunity to bring uh, Eliza Orleans on the show. She's also a member of the uh, 13th Forward Coalition. She's a former, well, I think she's currently a public defender, because I'd love to, you know, get her, like, behind the scenes uh, update on what's going on over there. She also is the uh, former candidate for the Manhattan District Attorney. So, Eliza, if you're listening, I invited you to tune in to listen. Hopefully we can uh, make that happen and have you on the show soon. That's all I wanted to say, Max. Uh, Word. Well, we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, and I did want to bring up one piece of news um, before we start to wrap up this evening and get into our Bridging the Gap segment. And that's when we change these constitutions, we have created new laws of the land, the supreme laws of the land. And that's all well and fine, but they have to be enforced for them to have any teeth. And when it's the Constitution, usually that's something that can, that can be enforced. And we've seen that happen recently with former Clayton County Sheriff Victor Hill. Um, I became aware of Victor Hill back in – he had his competitor, uh, his competitor's wife, arrested running for sheriff. Uh, that was when I became first aware of him. And now he's what? going to prison. Yes, that was back in 2018. He had his competitor's wife arrested. Um, and now he has been busted, so to speak where he's violated the rights of at least a half a dozen people in Clayton County. Uh, instances where he tied them to chairs. Uh, you know, the chairs are used if you're violent, stuff like that, tie you down hand and foot. Mm-hmm. And he's done that to half a dozen people just to exercise his power over them, not because they were violent or anything else. And he denied them multiple rights uh, of their, their constitutional rights. And because of that, he's facing 18 months in federal prison. That's former Clayton County Sheriff Victor Hill being held uh, accountable for his constitutional violations. And that's what they expect to start seeing all across the country. And that's when they'll stop doing what they're doing with the practice of violating your constitutional and human rights throughout this system when they get held accountable just like that. Um, with that being said, I want to say thank you to all our callers today and our guests um, Jesse Coakless and Wilfredo Laracuente. Um, wonderful having you here, and we look forward to working with you to help you get these bills passed uh, over the next year. Uh, thank you very much. Don't forget, next week we're going to have as our guest Jaleel Montekim, who spent half a century behind bars for a crime he didn't commit, and he is also a member of 13th Forward. So tune in next week for that uh, discussion. Yusuf? Yes, definitely. Thank you to Jesse Coklas, uh, Wilfredo Laraquente, and the entire 13th Forward campaign. I'll call us Abraham and Febo and Tony Crane and uh, Shanae, 
Hope I didn't forget anybody this week. But uh, thanking our sponsors and our partners. Oh, and you too, Max. Great, great show, you know. Always a pleasure being with you, brother. Uh, we want to thank our spot- thank sponsors you. and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the Iron Wheel Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sama Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, the Abolished Slavery National Network. Also, thank you, uh, Isabel Kennan, for doing the live tweeting during the broadcast. We're very appreciative of that. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page, youtube.com slash abolition today. Follow us on Twitter. That's abolition today, the number one, at abolition today one. And then we also have the abolition today Facebook page. So a ton of places to go to to find all the news, information, and music you hear on the program. Uh, abolition today is also available on all major podcast platforms. Remember to join the movement at AbolishSlavery.us to become part of the solution. You can text END THE EXCEPTION, all one word, to 52886 and follow the prompts. That will send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 20th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. You also want to make sure that you visit 13th Forward. Did they say .com or .org? I don't recall offhand, .com. but that's the .com. okay. Thirteenth, that's one three th forward .com, and also follow at end the exception on Twitter. That's the Abolish Slavery National Network page. It's also on Facebook and on Instagram, I believe. So we have our bridging the gap tonight, and it's. Always one of my favorites. Anytime I hear something by Ida B. Wells, and this is going to be the convict Lisa, and this is from August 30th, 1893, read by our very own Max Parthas, and that's going to be accompanied by one of my favorite tracks and one of my mom's favorite tracks, too, and that's The World is a Ghetto by War. We'll be back next week, God willing. As Max said, we'll have Jaleel Muntakeen on with us next week, political activist, former member of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army who served half a century in prison. So until next week, uh, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. 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 The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition by Ida B. Wells, 1862-1931, read by Max Parkers. Chapter 3, The Convict Lease System. The convict lease system and lynch law are twin infamies which flourish hand in hand in many of the United States. They are the two great outgrowths and results of the class legislation under which our people suffer today. Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Washington claim to be too poor to maintain state convicts within prison walls. Hence, The convicts are leased out to work for railroad contractors, mining companies, and those who farm large plantations. These companies assume charge of the convicts, work them as cheap labor, and pay the states a handsome revenue for their labor. Nine-tenths of these convicts are Negroes, 
There are two reasons for this. One, the religious, moral, and philanthropic forces of the country, all the agencies which tend to uplift and reclaim the degraded and ignorant, are in the hands of the Anglo-Saxon. Not only has very little effort been made by these forces to reclaim the Negro from the ignorance, immorality, and shiftlessness with which he is charged, but he has always been and is now rigidly excluded from the enjoyment of these elevating influences towards which he felt voluntarily drawn. In communities where Negro population is largest and these counteracting influences most needed, the doors of the churches, schools, concert halls, lecture rooms, young men's Christian associations, and women's Christian temperance unions have always been and are now closed to the Negro who enters on his own responsibility. Only as a servant or inferior being placed in one corner is he admitted. The white Christian and moral influences have not only done little to prevent the Negro from becoming a criminal, but they have deliberately shut him out of everything which tends to make for a good citizenship. To have Negro blood in the veins makes one unworthy of consideration, a social outcast, a leper even in the church. Two Negro Baptist ministers, Reverend John Frank, the pastor of the largest colored church in Louisville, Kentucky, and Reverend C.H. Parrish, president of the Eckstein Northern University at Cane Springs, Kentucky, were in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, in May, when the Southern Baptist Convention was in session. They visited the meeting and took seats in the body of the church. At the request of the association, a policeman was called and escorted these men out because they would not take the seats set apart for colored persons in the back part of the tabernacle. Both these men are scholarly of good moral character and members of the Baptist denomination, but they were Negroes, and that eclipsed everything else. This spirit is even more rampant in the more remote, densely populated plantation districts. The Negro is shut out and ignored, left to grow up in ignorance and vice. Only in the gambling dens and saloons does he meet any sort of welcome. What wonder that he falls into crime. Two, the second reason our race furnishes so large a share of the convicts is that the judges, juries, and other officials of the courts are white men who share these prejudices. They also make the laws. It is wholly in their power to extend clemency to white criminals and mete out severe punishment to black criminals for the same or lesser crimes. The Negro criminals are mostly ignorant, poor, and friendless possessing neither money to employ lawyers nor influential friends. They are sentenced in large numbers to long terms of imprisonment for petty crimes. The People's Advocate, a Negro journal of Atlanta, Georgia, has the following observation on the prison showing of that state for 1892. Quote, unquote, it is an astounding fact that 90% of the state's convicts are colored. 194 white males and two white females, 1,710 colored males and 44 colored females. Is it possible that Georgia is so prejudiced that she won't convict her white lawbreakers? Yes, it is just so, but we hope for a better day. George W. Cable, author of the Grandissimes, Dr. Sevier, etc., 
in a paper on the convict lease system, read before prison congress in Kentucky, says, In the Georgia Penitentiary, in 1880, in a total of nearly 1,200 convicts, only 22 prisoners were serving as low a term as one year, only 52 others as low as two years, only 76 others as low a term as three years, while those who were under sentences of 10 years and over numbered 538. Although 10 years, as the rolls show, is the utmost length of time that a convict can be expected to remain alive in the Georgia penitentiary. Six men were under sentence for a simple assault and battle, mere fisticuffs, one of two years, two of five years, and one of six years, one of seven, and one of eight. For larceny, three men were serving under sentences of 20 years, five were sentenced each for 15 years, one for 14 years, six for 12 years, 35 for 10 years, and 172 from one year up to nine years. In other words, a large majority of these 1,200 convicts had, for simple stealing, without breaking in or violence, been virtually condemned to be worked and misused to death. One man was under a 20-year sentence for hog stealing. Twelve men were sentenced to the South Carolina Penitentiary on no other finding but a misdemeanor commonly atoned for by a fine of a few dollars, and which thousands of the state's inhabitants, white, are constantly committing with impunity, the carrying of concealed weapons. Fifteen others were sentenced for mere assault and battery. In Louisiana, a man was sentenced to the penitentiary for 12 months for stealing $5 worth of gunny sacks. Out of 2,378 convicts in the Texas prison in 1882, only two were under sentence of less than two years length, and 509 of these were under 20 years of age. Mississippi's penitentiary roll for the same year showed 70 convicts between the ages of 12 and 18 years of age serving long terms. Tennessee showed 12 boys under 18 years of age under sentences of more than a year. And the North Carolina penitentiary had 234 convicts under 20 years of age serving long terms. Mr. Cable goes on to say in another part of his admirable paper, quote, unquote, in the Georgia convict force, only 15 were whites among 215 who were under sentences of more than 10 years. What is true of Georgia is true of the convict lease system everywhere. The details of vice, cruelty, and death thus fostered by the states whose treasuries are enriched thereby equals anything from Siberia. Men, women, and children are herded together like cattle in the filthiest quarters and chained together while at work. The Chicago Interocean recently printed an interview with a young colored woman who was sent six months to the convict farm in Mississippi for fighting. The costs, etc., lengthened the time to 18 months. During her imprisonment, she gave birth to two children, but lost the first one from premature confinement caused by being tied up by the thumbs and punished for failure to do a full day's work. She and other women testified that they were forced to criminal intimacy with the guards and cook to get food to eat.
Abolition. Abolition. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton.